Welcome to the Thought Leaders Podcast. Each episode, we sit down with a different expert to discuss digital marketing and online content. In these conversations, we provide context for all the changes currently facing the digital world. Here's your host, Thought Leaders founder and CEO, David Tintner. All right, we are here today with Darren Heitner, the founder of Heitner Legal. What's up, Darren? How's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing great. One of the things I'm most excited to talk to you about today is really the fact that you have been involved in the business of content or brand deals for as long as I've known you, which is actually a really long time. And you were doing this before there was even a name for what's going on today in the uh, content industry. So what I would love for you to do, Darren, is just kind of give us your entry point or how you got into doing what you're doing today, because you go way back on it. Well, I think it's really interesting. And you and I have known each other probably 15 to 20 years now, which is kind of crazy. And it's great to be touching base again, even across borders and across oceans. You hit on something, content. And there's been a phrase that I think a lot of people refer to quite often without even really thinking about it, which is that content is king. And I truly treated it as such. I mean, as for as long as we've known each other, I've been a firm believer in trying to remain relevant, constantly pushing out new content and not necessarily focusing on how to monetize that specific piece of content, but perhaps realizing throughout that there's all these ancillary benefits of remaining relevant, of providing value to others, even if you're not receiving any sort of direct revenue from that content that you're creating and disseminating. I probably got involved in the creation of content and promotion back when I was an undergrad at University of Florida with you and just promoting nightlife and, and having people going out to clubs. I mean, a lot of that was actually the creation of persuasive content in order to try to get people excited and motivated to just go out to a specific location at night. And it evolved. It evolved into areas that I was truly passionate about, such as sports business, sports marketing, law, and sports law. And think about three platforms that have erupted within the past decade or so, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, now TikTok, and I'm sure there'll be others. I mean, people don't really take advantage of the unique opportunities that are right in front of us that did not exist more than a decade ago. And the fact that they are just free mediums for us to provide our ideas, our theories, to provide opinions on important subjects of the day. And so I think certainly content, the creation of new, interesting content, and always putting your feet in the shoes of the consumer. Think about what it is that they would find interesting, what they may crave. And also, what is it that you're either an expert on or you want to be an expert on and focus on harnessing your capacity in that specific space without overextending yourself? I mean, there's a lot of things I think that go into a strategy of creating and disseminating effective content. And I've certainly been fortunate, if not sometimes lucky, to be able to grow my brand by focusing on what a lot of my audience craves. I think something you did, at least from, from an outsider watching it, was it always seemed you like you had this, like a strategy or a plan. You, you started with uh, the sports agent blog, 
And, and I believe that was when we were in college, you founded that, right? I created Sports Agent Blog as a New Year's resolution, December 31, 2005. So it was my junior year while we were in college, yes. So when you created that, I mean, you brought up a great point. You said you should think about what you're an expert on and also what you want to be an expert on. And I think a lot of what you did there was you kind of um, gave yourself an outlet to both share what you were learning and also learn from sharing. and. And at least from from an outsider kind of watching that, it really felt like you had this, like a strategy or a plan that you were going to be, you know, Jerry Maguire from the beginning. Was it really like that, that you had, you know, this clear cut plan? Well, yes, the answer is absolutely. In fact, sports agent blog wasn't sports agent blog on December 31, 2005. It was called, I want to be a sports agent. So I think that answers your question succinctly. And it was actually a sub page on the website I was using to promote nightlife at that time. I shifted my focus from what was absolutely paying the bills and what I found to be fun to what I really was looking to accomplish long-term, which at the time was to become a sports agent. And so as you also referenced, it was not just about at the time me creating content and being a thought leader. For others, I used this as a vehicle to meet many people within the sports agent industry so that I could increase and grow my Rolodex so I could challenge myself to learn more. And what I did was I created very early on a column called interview with the agent. And that allowed me to go and reach out to established agents and say, hey, this is a call I'm running. Would you be willing to sit for an interview? that we would publish on the blog and get out to those who are reading the website. It allowed them to learn about the website if they hadn't already known that it existed and then helped, as I mentioned, expand my connections in the space, which served to be extremely valuable over time. And starting a website like Sports Agent Blog led to forms without solicitation. I think it was 2012, so about six, seven years after creating Sports Agent Blog, reaching out to me saying that there were some fans in the editorial department and asking me to start writing there in the sports business section, which was gigantic in, in launching my career and then writing at OutKick and Above the Law. And so it sort of snowballed and introduced me to writing on various platforms. Just today, writing something on LinkedIn where now I'm a quote unquote creator. So they promote my content there. And it goes to show you, you don't necessarily need the traditional models like a Forbes to get your word out. Now you could actually harness the power on some of these social media platforms and just go directly to consumer. And, and just to prove the point that you were always thinking about publicity and, and how to get it from a, from a very smart angle. Your LinkedIn URL is sports agent. I mean, it's genius. And it may surprise some of your listeners after hearing the intro to this podcast. After creating Sports Agent Blog, after creating my own sports agency, I decided in 2011 that I was going to focus on law and stop being a sports agent. Yet I maintained that sports agent LinkedIn profile and URL, which has constantly confused people over the years, but I guess it's an icebreaker from time to time. I still, even a decade after halting being a sports agent, have to correct people because they just assume that someone 
who combines sports and law must be an agent, and, and that's not necessarily true. Okay, so explain exactly what you're doing today with Hydro Legal. I mean, you're still very, you're, you're not a sports agent anymore, but you're still very involved. That's right. I am. My law firm has a very focused niche on sports and entertainment related work. Now, it's not the only thing that we do. We do not only cater to athletes and entertainers, but uh, I position my law firm in a way where hopefully if there is an athlete or entertainer looking for legal services, we are top of mind. And obviously that didn't happen overnight. That's been something that's been built up for over a decade. The types of work that we do traditionally are transactional work. We do intellectual property protection and enforcement like trademarks, copyrights, right of publicity, trade secrets. We do a lot of litigation and arbitration uh, in the civil sphere. In fact, uh, I've recently, uh, I've been named the AAA American Arbitration Association arbitrator, which I'm looking forward to, to serving more in that capacity in the future. But that's really the crux of what we do at Heidner Legal. And as I mentioned, we do service a lot of athletes, a lot of entertainers, and a lot of sports agents. And so going back to your question, you know, there's a distinction between being a lawyer and a sports agent. The main distinction being, I'm not certified by any of the major players associations. I'm not negotiating the team contracts for the players. I leave that to the domain of the sports agents, and they don't want to compete with them because they're great clients of mine. What do I do? Pretty much everything else when it comes to a, a legal, uh, from a legal standpoint. So let's talk about that. In 2019, I believe you were asked to help craft the NIL legislation, which has recently come into law. And that, I guess, falls under, as you mentioned, you do everything else kind of related to, to this, except for, you know, signing, signing the deals. So you were someone who was positioned pretty well to be able to help craft this legislation. What was that process like? It was emotionally and time consuming, but extremely rewarding. I was asked back in September, 2019 to assist in the creation and promotion of legislation in the state of Florida by the representative who uh, governs my specific district, uh, Representative Chip LaBarca. He had seen what was happening in California at the time, which was, you know, the, the Golden State decided to be the first to pass legislation effectively prohibiting the NCAA from enforcing its restrictive measures that prevented college athletes in that state from benefiting from their names, images, and likenesses, effectively preventing them from making money outside of a salary from uh, their teams, which they still can't do. But it was very important because to be honest, these are athletes that never should have had their rights taken away from them. Literally everyone else in the country has these rights of publicity. And so one of the first things we looked at was, was there a justification for California who was absolutely a leader in this space? going back to 2019, was there a justification for California to decide we're going to pass this law, but not make it effective until four years later? Their law did not go into effect at the time of passing until July, 2023. And we said to ourselves, if we believe these are rights that should never have been taken away from athletes, why wait? Who are we doing a favor for? It seems as though it would be for the NCAA and why? And so we determined 
that there should not be a gap. In fact, when we first put together legislation, we wanted it to go live July 1, 2020. Now, hindsight being 2020, maybe it was a good thing that it didn't go into effect then because we hadn't known at the time that the world would be shaken by the coronavirus pandemic. But also at the same time, maybe it would have been a good thing for athletes to have the capacity to make money while the, their seasons were in flux. Anyhow, ultimately, we became the first state to allow name, image, and likeness rights for college athletes as of July 1, 2021. Many other states followed, and the NCAA on June 30th of this year decided to implement what it calls an interim NIL policy that, at least for the time being, blocks their prior prohibition. And so that's why college athletes across the country can now benefit. There's nothing typical when it comes to the NCAA. This is actually very atypical. It's very rare for states to take any action on college sports policy. However, what may be a bit more common is that when a multitude of states start proposing and, and adopting legislation, what and, and when that legislation varies state to state, what you'll commonly find is that the federal government intervenes. And yet, We've had over 25 states that have passed legislation on name, image, and likeness. The federal government has had no lack of proposals. You've had numerous congressmen and women attach their names to proposed legislation on this subject. I think we're nearing 10 different bills. None of them have gotten out of committee. Everyone wants to take credit for it. And what was a very middle of the road, Bipartisan or nonpartisan issue, state by state, has somehow become very political on Capitol Hill. And Congress hasn't been able to pass anything on the national level, which is why right now you see for the states that have passed legislation, and not all of them have, some are just operating, the schools are operating under the NCA's temporary inter-NIL policy and their respective school policies. But in the states that had laws, they vary. And some would suggest that the federal government should intervene. The NCA would even like it. At one point in time, I think many believe that could happen in the foreseeable future. Now, no one knows. Does it have a set expiration date on it or it's uh It does not. Okay. Until further notice. In fact, I'll, I'll interject briefly. The NCAA has a constitutional convention and recently proposed a new constitution, I think that would more permanently establish rights from the NCAA level, but that still needs to be voted on. So who are the sides here in this kind of, in this issue? You know, I don't know that there's necessarily sides anymore at this point. I suppose you could say the NCAA is on one side where they are very reluctant to change and only alter their rules if, if pushed and will wait till the bitter end in order to do anything, which is there's proof there with regard to NIL. And they also want a reduction of exposure. They're concerned about pending litigation that goes to their past practices of preventing college athletes from enjoying their name, image, and likeness rights. And they're concerned about future litigation if there's any restrictions that may be in place. On the other hand, you know, you have athletes, you have the states and really the federal government at this point that all believes these are rights that never should have been taken away from the athletes. And so you've seen a lot of movement in a short amount of time. If you have any appreciation for how politics work, I mean, states really moved very quickly on this. It definitely feels like something that's kind of 
came out of almost out of nowhere and changed overnight in terms of what you would expect to have happen for these types of organizations. Well, the NCA has no excuse for sitting on its hands. It's known this was coming for quite some time. You can go back to Ed O'Bannon, who sued the NCAA years ago based on use of name, image, and likeness. And then you could look at the pending Supreme Court case that was decided earlier this year, Alston v. NCAA, where the NCAA lost unanimous decision, 9-0, and Justice Kavanaugh even came out in his concurring opinion asking whether any restraints implemented by the NCAA are justifiable, but the premise of the overall case was based on restrictions related to academic-related benefits. But the NCAA, at least at a minimum, knew that Florida was going live for over a year. You had the Florida legislature pass its legislation, I believe it was March of 2020, and then Governor Ron DeSantis signed it into law in June 2020. So it, it thought about what to do for quite some time. In fact, the NCA came up with its own legislation that it proposed. It was supposed to vote on it. It punted on it probably wisely because ultimately there was this heavy-handed Supreme Court decision that probably would have made them adjust anyway. But the NCA has no excuses here. I mean, they could have very easily just implemented an interim NIL policy back in June 2020 when Governor Ron DeSantis signed his name to the legislature in Florida. So what does it mean now in practice that players are able to use their name, image, and likeness? How are they actually taking advantage of this today? In a multitude of ways. We have athletes creating their own businesses. They're endorsing brands that are selling products and services. They're selling memorabilia and doing autograph signings. They are creating NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and selling those. They're performing at camps and clinics for youth where there's an entry fee to participate. They're being philanthropic and raising money for charity, which used to be scrutinized even by the NCAA. I mean, I could go on and on. It, the, the opportunities are limitless. We're seeing athletes in revenue producing sports and non-revenue producing sports, we're seeing males, we're seeing females, we're seeing division one, division two, II, division three. Everyone has an opportunity now that they didn't have before. And yes, there's absolutely disparity in terms of the revenue that will be earned, but they have equality and opportunity. And that's what's very exciting to me. And that always puts a smile on my face. And, and what does it mean for universities now that athletes are able to do this? What's changed from their side? Well, they've had to adjust. They, you know, this is a new world for them from a compliance standpoint. They want to make sure that they're doing everything in accordance with the NCA regulations, in accordance with their state laws that they're already in, in place. It's also become a major recruiting tool. Now add this to, you know, the existing heavy recruiting uh, efforts, which included you know, promoting the coach and promoting the athletic facilities and the history and record of the universities. Now it's about, you know, what, what resources are the universities providing for NIL and for branding and what deals have been done for the current class of students and what should be expected for future classes. It's really, it's changed the game. 
It's really cool to think about. I know one of the things that we think about thought leaders a lot when it comes to purchasing sponsorships on YouTube or doing brand deals and content is repetition. If the brand is continuing to go back to the same creator and buy something over and over, then it tends to be a sign succeeding with, with that creator. And I think if you start looking at that on the university level, right, if you start seeing like a brand is always doing deals with the quarterback of, of this school. No. Okay. The quarterback's changing over time, but brand is going back and continuing to do it. That's a sign for recruits that, oh man, if I go to this school, you know, I am, I'm Nike waiting for me or, or whatever that brand is. Are we seeing things like that yet? Or is it really still player by player? Well, it, it has to be to an extent player by player because these offers can't be contingent on a player attending a university. It's one of the few regulations that the NCAA has put in place, which is that deals can't be contingent on enrollment or staying at a school. And so if a brand is saying overtly, we're putting this offer out for all future quarterbacks at the University of Florida, that could pose a problem. I suppose less so than actually saying to a recruit, if you go to UF, then you get this deal. But that's, that's really what the NCA wants to avoid is this sort of theory that there's improper inducements that could cause a player to enroll at a university and, and completely shift the balance of power with regard to recruiting. Even if it's not overtly said, I imagine that brands are evaluating these type of deals similar to the way that they would evaluate any, any kind of content sponsorship or creator deal that the, that the engagement that they're going to get from it or, or the viewership the audience that they're going to pick up from it. Well, I, I think what you find is that various brands and individuals who are operating and playing in the space right now, they have, uh, different motives for getting involved. Certainly the traditional brand doing sponsorship and getting an endorsement is going to look very strictly at the return on investment and look at any sort of metrics and analyses that'll assist them in understanding what the value is here, what the compensation should be and whether or not there's actual value here to engage in the, in the type of opportunity. And I certainly, even the first four plus months have been involved in campaigns where I know the brands have asked for those metrics. Let's say after uh, a post or multiple posts on Instagram or on TikTok, they want to see the number of eyeballs, the amount of engagement, the number of impressions, the amount of comments, et cetera. So, and, and those are, are, are standard data points in this social media world that we live in. I'd say a lot of the, the deliverables had focused on social media thus far, but, but not exclusively. But, but yes, to your point, that traditional brands who are getting into this for traditional reasons absolutely want to best document the return on investment. Do you know or aware of what tools they're using to track return on investment or method? I think they're, from what I've seen, they're largely relying, let's say with regard to social media, they're relying on a deliverable from the athlete to go into his or her back end, which an Instagram, a TikTok, et cetera, and will provide to the athlete to see what the stats are and then provide them on a timely basis to the brand. Uh, so the brand is making that part of the obligations of the athlete. Okay. So, so it sounds like all of a sudden has a 
pretty serious amount of work that they need to be doing, right? It's not, it's not just people are just throwing money at them with, with nothing in turn here. They need to actually, um, deliver something and show that this money is going to create some value for the brand. Look, if you're getting paid $50,000 to endorse a brand on Instagram and TikTok, I think it's the least you can do as an athlete. And it's really not asking for all that much. And, and I say that as an athlete advocate, but I, I think that type of deliverable makes perfect sense. And it's, it's really not asking much from the athlete. Well, like, I guess what I'm getting at is kind of, are they hiring a social media manager? The answer is yes. I mean, like there's over 400,000 college athletes. So the vast majority are not, but. The high profile athletes are certainly creating these types of management teams that you referenced. And sometimes that includes an actual manager. Other times it also includes an agent who's out there pounding the pavement, procuring opportunities. Oftentimes it'll include a lawyer such as myself to review and revise contracts and ensure that the athletes are completely protected. Also from an intellectual property standpoint, many are seeking the advice of accountants and financial planners to ensure that they're not squandering their assets and also preparing for taxes that they're going to have to be paying for the first time. So the hope is that those with the biggest opportunities absolutely are crafting business teams to surround them and provide them with proper advice and also basically serving as checks and balances to each other and making sure that the respective service providers are appropriately doing their jobs. Let's say like career prospects as an athlete. Does it maybe change them from thinking, I, I need to make it to professional level in order to become rich, or I need to go to this school in order to get on this path? We've seen stuff shift in that decision-making. We're early stages. I think it's very hard to tell. I mean, we are only four and a half months in. I do think athletes are going to absolutely consider NIL when they are factoring in the various attributes of the schools in which they may have an invitation to it. I think many athletes are, are considering themselves to be business people much earlier in their lives than before, which is a great thing in my estimation. I think that they're much more cautious about the type of content that they're publishing on various social media, et cetera, because now they are their own brands and in a lot of these contracts, obviously there will be opportunities for brands that they're doing deals with to his compensation obligations, if they do anything that could tarnish the reputation of the brand. So, you know, all those things considered, I think there there's vast changes for college athletes and, and certainly a lot of athletes who will never go pro or who may have pro potential, but suffer a devastating injury or for whatever reason, don't end up having the opportunity that uh, they predicted and those who surround them predict. And so I think that's another great thing. Think of the Miami Dolphins quarterback, Tua Tagovailoa, who suffered a terrible injury at Alabama when he was in college. There, were, there was talk at the time that he'd never be a professional athlete. Well, he wouldn't have been able to benefit. He, he couldn't benefit while he was in college at Alabama. But that consider Bryce Young, who's currently a, the quarterback at Alabama, who's made seven figures. Now, if he suffers an injury, at least he's got some money. He's made some money in his collegiate career. And yeah, you know, again, I don't think that's a, that's something that should have ever been taken away from these college athletes. I wonder if it also keeps college athletes in college longer. I, I, I think the athletes with the biggest pro potential will still leave early, largely based on what I just mentioned, which is there's this, this potential, this real potential for 
devastating injury that can affect draft status. You know, also, if you're projected to go high and you perform poorly the next year, you could negatively impact your draft position. And despite the money that you're making in NIL, it probably pales in comparison to the guaranteed dollars you'll get if you get drafted high up. Plus, you'll still have those NIL opportunities as a professional athlete. Many professional athletes do marketing deals. I've been fortunate to help many of them with that. But yeah, I, I think where you'll see change perhaps is, you know, that mid to late round projected athlete maybe sticks around another year, knowing that there's also that potential to make some money off the field. Are there any limitations on the brands that a college athlete can work with in relation to, for example, let's say a university has a, a major sponsor. Can the athlete go and get sponsored by the direct competitor of the university sponsor? You know, you really have to look state by state, school by school. As I mentioned before, not all states have NIL laws in place. And then those that do vary depending on what's said within those laws. Some states say that you cannot have a deal that, that, can, that competes with a brand that competes uh, with a brand that's with a university. Others like Florida say you can, but the terms of the contract can't conflict. So for instance, University of Florida being a Jordan brand school, an athlete can do a deal with Adidas or Puma, but Puma or Adidas can't require the athlete to wear that apparel or shoes on the court, on the field, where there is a deal in place with Jordan brand and the school. You know, in other states you have, like Texas has outlawed a variety of different types of deals, like with tobacco company, with adult entertainment companies, with gambling companies, whereas... Other states, again, if they have no law in place or silent, you'd look to the school-specific policy. You know, take, for example, Florida. FAU, the quarterback in Kosi Perry, he signed the deal with a beer company. Well, he's over the age of 21. No, no, no issue there. So you really have to look specifically state-by-state, school-by-school. Yeah, it's really interesting as we think about, uh, I'm really thinking about doing digital marketing today and how that can potentially be applied to yeah. Religion like this now, NCAA. And I'm thinking that's one of the strategies that's really common in film marketing is like stealing your competitors' keywords, right? Or, or looking at their strategy and like taking the stuff that's, that's working for them, right? They've already wasted their money on finding the failing stuff. And once they start finding something that's good. So I'm wondering if brands are looking at ways that they can get into opportunities that were previously closed to them before because the competition got there first. Or, or you know, doors just weren't open to them before and they can get in through player. Well, I'm speaking with a lot of big brands. And again, remember, we're only four and a half months in and a lot of big brands have sort of sat on the sidelines intentionally because they sort of wanted to see what the waters look like before they jumped in head first. And so, you know, to, to your point, do so, let some of the others do the dirty work and then take advantage of the research that you can do to see what are the best practices and what doesn't work. And I think a lot of big brands decided they were going to take that sort of strategy going in. And we'll still see many of those big brands get involved in NIL because there's immense opportunities, but they just kind of wanted to take a wait and see approach. Although it does feel to me like the big brands, I mean, they have budgets and they've already been involved in college sports, albeit not directly with a player. So it feels like the opportunity for 
that I, that I see for is more for the challenger brands who budgets before to get involved in college sports and know maybe can get in with a, a second tier player and suddenly, you know, they're, they're getting some face time that they didn't have before, or even an option. There's great ambushing opportunities for brands that have been prevented from associating specific schools. I mean, take for instance, I, I love using University of Florida as example, because obviously it's a school I know very well. Let's use another brand, Pepsi. Pepsi and Gatorade have been a part and parcel of University of Florida forever. I mean, Gatorade was created on the grounds of the University of Florida. What prevents Body Armor, which was just purchased by Coke, Coca-Cola, or any other competing brand from trying to ambush that amazing longstanding relationship by and between the university and that brand by going directly to the athletes, as long as the athletes, again, aren't agreeing to terms that conflict with the terms by between Pepsi and the University of Florida. And that's just one example. I think there are examples abound of instances where across the country, innovative brands that are willing to push the envelope and willing to take the backlash because obviously that comes with being an ambusher. But I think there's unique opportunities now to disrupt a space that has largely remained quite static where relationships oftentimes don't get interfered with. What do you see are uh, some of the typical deal structures that brands are doing with athletes? Is it, are, are there like one-off deals for a single week so for a season? Yeah. Is it? it varies. I mean, we've, I've done a lot of one-offs where, you know, one post on social media in exchange for X amount of dollars. I've done multiple year deals. I just did a deal for Anthony Richardson, a uh, quarterback at the University of Florida, where we guaranteed him a, a car to use until the end of the 2023 calendar year. And he gets to swap in that car every three to six months throughout the term of that relationship. So it varies. I mean, it, it allows athletes, their representatives and brands to be as creative as they wish, as long as they remain within the confines of the laws that exist. Because one of the things I would imagine is Let's say you do a deal with someone at the beginning of the season. We don't know, obviously, how that's going to play out, both on the personal level, where the player going to get injured or they're not going to play well, and also on the team level, or are they going to make it to uh, a high-profile bowl or are they going to you know, fizzle out? So I'm wondering how much brands are kind of willing to take these bets, if you will. Well, they seem to be willing to do it so far. And, you know, the one criticism that I've seen from some people in the business is, Oh, look at Spencer Rattler, the, the guy, the quarterback who was initially the starter at Oklahoma at the beginning of the year and lost his job. Or look at Derek King, the quarterback at Miami who got injured and also lost his job. Or, you know, there's, there's countless examples. DJ, the quarterback at Clemson, and Clemson was supposed to be in the national championship again this year, and they probably will come far from it. But at the same time, I'm sure brands have earned a lot in terms of the impressions, even after these athletes were no longer playing, because just because so many people were talking about them. And one of the constraints uh, that has been put in place by the NCAA outside of that whole improper inducement to enroll at a university is you can't pay the consideration from a brand to an athlete can't be contingent on performance, on athletic performance. So, so you can't put in a contract if the athlete's no longer participating, if he's benched, we're not paying it. 
That's it. That's not allowed. So, you know, it's a protection for the athletes. When you say performance though, does that, does that eliminate any sort of deal that talks about, let's say like their actions on the field? If you, you know, throw a touchdown, you get X. Yeah, no, it, it can't be performance-based. There can't be bonuses based on performance. That's, well, that's something that's just like begging for people to find the loopholes in. I'm always looking for loopholes in everything, but you're right. I mean, yes, yes. People will be looking for loopholes without, at the same time, the last thing you want to do is jeopardize a player's eligibility. You, you imagine the brand is looking for exposure, right? And, you know, so much of exposure is, is taught, is based on their, their actions on the field, right? And it doesn't necessarily have to be like, I, I understand something like getting benched as you brought up for, for winning, but there's like also micro actions that, that are really important to exposure for that athlete and thus the brand. Not, it, it just can't be based or attached to athletic performance. Now. Maybe you tie bonuses to academic performance. I mean, you can tie bonuses to other things. It just can't be based on your athletic performance. So, so what advice would you have to like a brand marketing team that knows they just kind of hear it about this now and they know it's something hot, it's something new and they don't even know where to get. Well, I always say, in fact, this is something I put on my LinkedIn post today. I kind of gave a, a rundown of some of the thoughts that I have for athletes who are looking to get to the space. But this one thing would also be very important for brands, which is the absolute best deals are between athletes and brands where the brand absolutely is interested in the athlete and not just his or her follower count. And the athlete had, there's authenticity there because the athlete either already uses the products and services of the brand or tries it out, gets an appreciation for it, and becomes a power user of the brand. Uh, those are the types of relationships that, I mean, just consumers see through the garbage. Consumers understand when an athlete's getting paid to just promote a product that the athlete couldn't give any care. So I think that's really what's most important. Now, the other thing is, it's, it's very difficult to have an appreciation as to what fair market value is on these deals. It's a brand new industry. so. Consult people in the know, consult agencies or agents or lawyers who have been in this space for a long time and don't feel as though this is something you have to do on your own. There is a lot of data out there, but it's privately held. I mean, I have tons of contracts that I've worked on over 11 years, but no one has access to them other than me. And that's true for a lot of people in this industry. So for brands that want to get involved in the space, Go to the people who actually have the documentation that you can rely upon for a better chance of success. Your, your reference points aren't only with college athletes, although I've, we've started to do a lot of deals and, you know, that database of documentation is growing by the day. And so comparisons can be made athlete to athlete based on the deliverables, the attributes, et cetera. It's not a perfect science either. I mean, everything's obviously negotiable and typically the biggest element to any of these deals is leverage and how badly the brand wants the athlete. But yeah, I, I wouldn't say that we're talking about only college athlete deals as a reference point for these negotiations. Do you think that deals that college athletes are doing with brands could surpass potentially deals that 
professional athletes would do in terms of value at some point? I, I don't think so on the mean. You have over 400,000 college athletes. Many of them will be doing very small scale deals. So if we're looking at the mean or the median, the answer is probably no. In terms of total gross, yes. I think we're talking here about a billion dollar plus industry on an annualized basis. And as I mentioned, there's just so many athletes who are out there. Plus a lot of professional athletes, uh, particularly outside of basketball, tend to not be very marketable. That may surprise some people, especially baseball players and oftentimes football players because their faces are covered and their whole bodies are covered too. So in gross, yes, it definitely feels like there's something here that they need to be paying attention to. But as you kind of mentioned, it's like, it's really early days. And I imagine what we see throughout the rest of this year and into next year could, could look really different than even what we see today. Any, any kind of last uh words or last advice you give on on the subject before we sign off here well bottom line is we're at a better place today as a society and certainly that's true for the college athletes than we were a year ago or even five months ago and to all the people who said this would be the end of college sports as we know it or that chaos would ensue they've been proven wrong at least within the first five months We've only seen more interest in college sports, and that's largely because people are so interested in the individual and the individual stories, and a lot of those stories are coming out through NIL. So I'm very happy with what I've seen thus far. That's awesome, and I hope it continues and, and definitely sounds promising. So thank you very, very much for joining us, and uh, we'll catch you later, Darren. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leaders Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about what's trending in the online sphere and how you can make sense of the cookie-less internet, make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our weekly newsletter at thoughtleaders.io. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts to stay tuned for the next episode. This podcast was hosted by David Tintner and edited and produced by me, Noam Yadin.